Hello and welcome, independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind, Shadow Citizen. Welcome to episode three. This week's guest will be Chris Emery, and uh, you can hear us live and chat with us uh, at mixlr.com forward slash shadow citizen. Uh, we're also simulcast and rebroadcast over at radioconfluence.com, and from there you can take us with you on TuneIn and Xeno Live. But check out our main page, which is shadowcitizen.online, and you can see our upcoming guest. And let's see. We've been having Skype problems, so uh, we're going to see if we can get that to work now. Um, my name is Rob O'Sell, and my co-host is... I'm Rachel L. McIntosh. So I'm really excited about this show because our guest today is um, Chris Emery. And Chris Emery, he's the producer of a lot of really awesome documentaries, one of which I showed at my library three times and got really good response from the movie that I'm talking about is called A Noble Lie. He's also been involved with the production of Shadow Ring, which was the film that our last guest last week, uh, James Perloff, was involved with based on his book, Shadows of Power. I'd like to introduce him. Is he here to talk to us? Well, I tried. It shows that he's back online, but right now he has kind of disappeared from my... Uh... My, my Skype uh, list here, so... Uh, uh oh, oh no. We're having a technical oh, there difficulty. It is. So let's try this again. Add to call. And but regardless, I am super excited to have him on because that movie, A Noble Lie, was so interesting because when I showed it the library, there was a woman in the audience who wasn't really prepared for what she was going to see. She had a little pin on that had a picture of her friend who had died in Iraq as a soldier. And she watched the whole film. And at the end, very end of the film, you could tell she was really, really shaken. And she said, do you, and I don't know why she jumped right into this, but she said, do you mean to tell me my friend, and she showed her pin, she said, my friend died for no reason. And I said, I, I, I didn't know what to say. So she just started crying. And I, I didn't know what else to do but to give her a hug. Yeah, That's it, how powerful this film is, this Noble Life film is. It really is. And it's is. about the Oklahoma, yeah, it's about the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, and Chris, um, let, Let's chat. Yes. Okay, Chris Great. is here. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. yay. Chris is here. Yay. Come on up. Right on, Chris. Thanks for oh, yeah. showing up. Well, I'm sorry about that. I had to reboot, and then the internet crashed. So sometimes that happens when we start these interviews. Right, right, it. right. So anyway, um, thank you for inviting me on. It's You're uh, quite more an honor than to be welcome. here. You're more than welcome. Tell you, why don't you give us um, the background on you? Because I tried to kind of fill in some blank spaces, and I just started rambling. So you tell us what you want. Well, our uh, I don't want to be repetitive. So you read the the bio. And that, yeah, that pretty, pretty much, much encapsulates it. I, this is my 36th year in radio, television, and film, and um, actually got into the production side of uh, the film business about 16 years ago. Okay. And uh, well, in 1998, so we're looking at 18 years ago. 
and did small biographical documentaries, training videos, industrial videos uh, for those uh, in the film industry that different companies use those for training, um, you know, insurance uh, companies, whatever. And then um, the opportunity came up to uh, work on a, um, I was doing research on the, the downing of flight TWA 800. Mm -hmm. I'm not going that, to, that's another interview for another day, guys. But yeah. um, what was really shocking about that was after two and a half years of research and consulting with retired military and uh, James Sanders, whose wife was a former flight attendant. And at the time I was dating a flight attendant with the TWA. That made it more out. personal, really. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, in, in, in a lot of ways, because her yeah, job, I bet. Yeah, her, her job was actually threatened um, when I carried on. I was asking questions and um, come to find out it was just a catastrophic uh, um, accident on the part of the U.S. Navy. They accidentally shot the, the flight down and did everything they could to cover it up. Now, the, the higher ups did. There were a lot of, like I said, retired and uh, middle uh, ranking officers that uh, refused to lie about it. And uh, they were put in their place or had, you know, their pension and their their careers threatened. So anyway, um, I was asked to step away from that by uh, at the time, uh, you know, family members, uh, supervisor and uh, with TWA. And so about a month later, the case of Oklahoma City dropped in my lap and um, I was very reticent on, on taking it on because at the time, I believed the official narrative. I had no reason not to. But, um, you know, my, my litmus test is I give myself six months or $6,000, whatever I burn through first. And mm -hmm. if I can't find anything that supports the official narrative on the, the story, then it's time to sit down and hunker down and clear the table and figure out an outline of, okay, what supports the narrative and what doesn't. And with Oklahoma City, the only thing we found that was true was that, yes, 168 people were brutally murdered including three unborn children. And that was it. The, uh, the official narrative couldn't hold up legally, uh, scientifically, uh, ethically. So we were in a, you know, at a crossroads uh, to move uh, forward, uh, you know, on I, our self-funding the film. Go ahead. I'm, uh, yeah, I want to bust in right here because this is one of the things that always gets to me. People always say, oh, the government wouldn't do that to their own people. And you have to realize just how ruthless these people are because you know, wasn't it in that film that, you know, certain people didn't bring their kids into daycare that day and, you know, correct. and correct. other people, you know, lost their children because they could have just said, oh, there's a, a malfunction. And so they don't bring your kids in daycare won't be allowed to open. But it's like they almost want these child sacrifices because it really gets the public uh, mad that children, you know, innocent children died also. So I just want to. No, that's okay. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to throw that in and, and you know comment on that if you if you would. That's can um. We, can we um, back up and just explain to people who might not be familiar with Oklahoma, the Oklahoma City bombing? Just give an overview of what that is and why we're getting all up, up in arms about it. So well, give a, yes, a good question because here we are. What we'll do the math uh, coming up on what um, thirty years, thirty-one years. Mm -hmm, wow, mm -hmm. that's, uh, excuse me, 21 years. Right, so right. 20, 22 years now. Okay. Um, what we have is, it, it's the Alfred P. Murrah building was a federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, April 19, 1995. It was a Wednesday morning. Um, there was a alleged, uh, an ANFO truck bomb uh, in a 24-foot uh, rider truck, moving truck, that was pulled up in front of the Murrah building. It detonated at two minutes after nine, and destroyed the building and killed 168 people 160 that day eight had uh survived the blast initially but died of uh fatality or the mortal wounds um within about two weeks after that and um 
So the official narrative was that they had a disgruntled GI, Timothy McVeigh, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, lit this fuse of like an act. And I, I'm not being trite here, folks. I'm not being disrespectful. But if you can liken it to the Acme uh, bomb on a, uh, a Wiley E. Coyote and a Roadrunner cartoon, that's that's really how the narrative held up. It was completely right. foolish and completely irresponsible. Um, and uh, they claimed that he lit this uh, uh, truck bomb and walked away and uh, watched the building blow up. Well, it didn't happen like that. And like I said, we tried to find anything that would support that. I witnessed testimony from the local county, state, federal law enforcement, uh, retired military that did after action reports and had to debrief the uh, search and rescue and the canine crews and then search and recovery crews. They weren't coming up with anything that made sense there. The, the photographs, uh, the, the video uh, footage that was given to us by the Oklahoma County Sheriff's Department. I mean, it was just a, a cacophony of not only um, uh, eyewitness and earwitness testimony, but the photos and, you know, all the way from uh, the video footage shot in the building all the way to helicopter footage. So it took us eight and a half years to put Gosh. this film together. We had a lot of pushback, a lot of pushback. I bet. I bet. Now, what was the number one thing as you're, you're going through this eight and a half years where you just literally like holy guacamole, like I don't want to say the word, but you're like, oh my gosh, this is really bad. What was the number one thing, the number well, one thing out of the whole experience? There, was, like... there was a key source, and uh, I, I want to put a time frame on this. The bombing happened in 1995. I really didn't become interested in it until early 1999. I met Charles Key, who was a former state representative who headed up the Independent Investigation Committee, the Oklahoma Bombing Investigation Committee. I met him in June of 2001. 9-11 happens at September, and then we really went full force into the film when I moved to Oklahoma City in 2003. So to answer your question, there was a lot of things that came together, but one of the most powerful uh, pieces of damning evidence was the actual blueprints of the building. And there was a confidential source with the GSA office out of Fort Worth. Fort mm -hmm. Worth was in charge of that region. And um, that uh, this particular individual, it was his first big project back in... 1990, I want to say this, uh, excuse me, 1976, they built the uh, building. And it was okay. his first big job. His last big job, ironically, was the building the new federal building that replaced the Murrah building. That was it. And then he was he retired after that was done. So he saw a full circle in both of these buildings. But uh, his name, he, he gave me um, eight pages of 62 pages of blueprints. And I'll never oh, forget gosh. this. Uh, I met him down in Fort Worth. I was down there visiting my brother for Christmas. He called me Christmas Eve of 2003 and he says I need you to meet me uh, at an undisclosed locate well I can't say where we met but he handed me eight pages of the blueprints I enrolled those pages when I got back to my brother's house and I'm I am a I studied architecture and uh, civil engineering at college and as soon as I enrolled the uh, the floor plans in that building I started at the research at the time I did at, up to that point where the explosives were what what damage is under the building I says my god um, these blueprints just tell all, um, you know, the, this, it, the damage couldn't have happened this way because there were support columns. There were, uh, you know, certain uh, electrical closets that could have had access for the ordinance. And I, I started putting all of the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, and also the, the uh, after action reports written by the Oklahoma City Police Department, which okay. clearly showed that the damage pattern to the building could not have been caused by a, a one point source, a, such as the, the truck, truck bomb. bomb. Yeah. Then, then and we have... Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, so it was like the it was 9-11 that really kicked it into gear. And right, interestingly right. enough, you're looking at blueprints 
Right, and, exactly. And now 9-11, there's people that are very concerned about Building 7, and they are also searching for blueprints of that building, which apparently now those blueprints are in complete lockdown. Nobody can get to them. Right. So right. it's sort of a similar situation. Also, what happened after um, Oklahoma City, didn't they, isn't that when they rolled out the USA Patriot Act? Well, like it was the, it was a reincarnation. It was more of, um, in fact, General Parton, who helped us, he was an expert consultant, mm -hmm, a former mm -hmm. head of the Pentagon Armament Lab for 18 years. He said that the, the Patriot Act, we already had all the, the tenants and all of the, the doctrine in that act already on the books for many right. years. Yeah. And the Patriot Act just took more of a sinister and more overreaching um, approach to, uh, you know, the, the gun rights and uh, buckling down on uh, supposed right-wing militia, which turned out to be complete hogwash. Mm -hmm. If there was anything that the, the right-wing militia would have done, they would have guarded that building. You know, I mean, they, they had enough respect for the government at the time. You don't be killing innocent people. So that whole narrative just got flipped on his head. And as a film crew, let me let me qualify this, guys. We had a lot of very good people, like I said, in all of the levels of law enforcement in the U.S. government help us. Retired FBI, retired CIA, a retired member of a form, um, you know, organized crime that worked for the U.S. CIA. They came forward and told us what happened, with at least their, their bit of what they thought had happened. And so we don't want to uh, paint a broad brush that, you know, the U.S. government is completely sinister because there's the good part and the bad part. And it, right. unfortunately, it was the bad part. It's the yang and the ying, to use a better term, the balance. And it was the bad part that uh, you know planned uh, and committed and covered up this this particular crime, and so as a film crew we had no legal standing. Number one, number two, we weren't out to get anybody in trouble. We just wanted to correct, in, in our humble and our professional way, correct the record of this historic event, so future generations could at least get a balanced view of what happened here, and right. hopefully you know it'll it'll help them judge if there's any future acts, which there were, false flag terrorism, right. uh, to let them know what's going on. And have something right. to at least you know professional to to balance on that. Okay, from the from the chat room, I, I I have a question. It says, wasn't the investigation of the Whitewater uh, wasn't that housed there? And I believe more so it was the Waco uh, incident that was all the papers were were housed there, and so there was a reason you know to get rid of this building, right? Well, as far as the Waco papers, um, I know that um, they had the. Uh, that's in fact, Rachel. You, we had talked about that a few days ago when we were doing a test run on this, and I can go into that subject later. But we don't have any proof that the Waco papers were actually at the Murrah building. Um, now, as far as the Whitewater papers, there was some uh, rumor, there was some conjecture. Uh, we did have a source within the, um, uh, I want to say the uh, the fire department, the Oklahoma City uh, Fire Department, that found some documents that may have related to that. But we did not get any definitive proof. That they mm -hmm. were in there. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Good so to that's know. why we, we, yeah, we could not include that in the film unless we had to triple check that. So, um, but there was a lot of other. What we do know for sure, guys, is that there was a drug case, a federal uh, drug case, ready to go to court on May 10 of that year, and that uh, the contraband, the cash, and the actual drug uh, um, drugs were actually stored in the DEA uh, safe room on the seventh floor, and that was a multi-billion-dollar case. Um, the Medellin drug cartel, and there was Juan Abrego. He was one of their informants and bagman that was actually brought into custody the year after the bombing. Um, they finally caught him. That case never went to court. All of the, everything was destroyed, and the subpoenas were dropped in federal court. You uh, said it was a billion dollars. Oh, yeah, we're talking international billions of dollars. Yeah, that and could these have shut people that are, and, and these people are just walking around now. 
there were there were three of them in Oklahoma City that we knew of that were still living uh, free. They never were brought into custody. What were they it, bringing in? Cocaine? Oh, it was just a, a wide variety of, of substance it was bringing in. So, mm-hmm. um, and I have that from a confidential source with the DEA that was actually on the seventh floor that morning. I sat mm-hmm. down with her at a kitchen table and had a conversation for over three hours. And she told me what was in the safe room. She told me what was going on and that they were entrusted by the, the U.S. prosecutor's office to keep that in safekeeping. The courthouse was literally across the street from the federal right. building. And um, that case never went to trial. So um, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Now, so I, how does Timothy McVeigh fit into the whole the whole scheme then? He just. Okay. Go ahead. What, he, Tell us what, what we found out is, and this is by way of his defense counsel, Stephen Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, after Stephen Jones found out that we were going to be working on the film, he knew that we were going to take a very serious and very methodical and objective approach to this. And I had met with him in October of 2003 um, and uh, at his office in Enid, Oklahoma. And we had a meeting for about two and a half hours. And on my way out, he handed me the card of the curator of the law library um, down in the University of Texas in Austin. He's an alumni of that law school. Mm-hmm. And um, ironically, his first big case was the Whitewater hearing. So he, he jumped in head first, man. He, he, he got his, earned his bones real, real quick. Um, or the, uh, the water, yeah, the Watergate hearings back in 72. Anyway, he gave me the card to the curator and says, if you need access to any of the boxes of the, of our documents we uh, obtained during the discovery process, Give this gal a call. Uh, she'll give you a, a discount on the copies. You can't take anything out of there, but she'll help you facilitate photocopying. So, um, wonderful job by Wendy Painting and Holland Van den Uenhoff, uh, our co-producers and researchers. Uh, Wendy actually moved from her home in upstate New York down to Austin, I believe, for the better part of five months, and was in that, uh, that library for uh, every day. She'd take maybe a day off a week. I went down there for four days and sat with her in there, and it was just amazing, the treasure trove of information. 141 boxes, legal document boxes, full of, of everything that um, the, the defense team put together to defend McVeigh. Let me, uh, in a nutshell, he was working for the CIA for two and a half years up to that point. Mm-hmm. How did we mm-hmm. know? We saw his pay records. I mean, you, you can't deny that. We saw. Yeah, you was, actually saw, like, pay stubs. Well, what does it, it say, CIA? <laughs> I can't go into the details on that, but we did we did determine that's okay. I did for a question. We did oh, determine yeah. that he was actually a uh, an assassin and he was smuggling drugs. Another thing people don't know is that McVeigh was on General Schwarzkopf's security detail during the first Persian Gulf War. Shut he was one the of, front door, really? Yeah, he, okay. yeah, he was a 50 cal gunner. He was one of two uh, 50 caliber uh, tank gunners. He could take mm-hmm. you out 1,800 yards downrange. He was on that security detail, and he was so good that when he was in custody at the federal courthouse in Denver awaiting trial, the army sent two medals of commendation to his attorney. Stephen Jones said, yeah, I received it and gave it to Tim McVeigh. The U.S. Army didn't want that to come out, but hey, it is what it is. You know, that's, yeah. So that, that definitely, that's another piece of the puzzle. It's like, this guy was so good that yes, he was hired by the CIA and he, um, he was an assassin. Now, oh he, didn't, he didn't assassinate top heads of state, not the folks that you hear about in the news every day. What he would do was he'd go three, four, five levels under them, mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. what he had to do to send the message to the top. If you're not in line, you don't go by our marching orders, this will probably happen to you and your family. That's all that needed to be done. He'd come home, he'd fly back on a jet, come home wherever he was, where home was for him. He had eight different identities, by the way, eight different driver's licenses. 
So you don't get that unless you're working for the U.S. government. Yeah. You know, oh my maybe gosh. One or, maybe one or two licenses, but not not eight. I so. remember when this whole thing very first happened. My husband at the time, he was a Marine. He's yeah. like, when he when they were putting Timothy McVeigh to death, um, he said he's not dead. I said, what do you no. mean he's not dead? He goes, no, he's a ghost. I go, what do you, what's that? I said, what's that? He goes, no, they don't just kill somebody that's that skilled. They exactly. they make him disappear. Yep. And this he's, is the convenient, the, the convenient yep. way to disappear is like, oh, he goes to sleep for a little bit. And he goes, probably next, next morning, they wake him up and they put him on a plane or maybe give him a facelift or something. Well, I, we know I, I'm going to interject right here if I can, because uh, wasn't one of the recent uh, Donald Trump assassination attempts, you know, carried out by somebody who was allegedly dead? You know, Am I, or, I, no, I, I don't know. I didn't catch. I that. don't know about that one. Yeah, I don't know about I'll, that. I'll have to do my research on that because I'm almost positive that that's that is the case. Uh, the guy wow. that you know rode the elevator up and had a uh, you know weapon without a serial number, you know, and they took him back to police headquarters and and let him go. And they said, oh yeah, he, he's dead. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they could very well have been. I don't know. Yeah, okay. I don't know about that one. That's a yeah, good. That's so. a good one to. Research. What we do know is that James Nichols, the brother of Terry Nichols, and I had uh, we had conversed and uh, met on by phone, and actually at the state trial of Terry Nichols, and and um, let's see, it was in 2004, uh, from March until June of 2004. Terry had, um, excuse me, James had been uh, at uh, the death chamber um, when Tim McVeigh was um, executed outside the death chamber in, in Terre Haute. And he said that there were three hearses that pulled out of the back of that facility to throw off the media. And it was, and he befriended Tim McVeigh's birth dad. Tim's mm. parents were divorced for quite a while. He befriended Tim's dad and they would not give Tim's dad his remains. They gave him an urn that allegedly had his ashes in it. Disrespectful, just kicked him in the teeth. Says, no, we're not gonna give you the body. By the way, here's an urn that, you know, we we're saying that has his ashes. There was no way to prove that he was dead. Some, somebody's cats in that, yeah, who knows. In that so uh, you know and even our lead invest one of our lead investigators uh, Craig Roberts who did a, a wonderful job uh, not Paul Craig Roberts W Craig Roberts out of Tulsa um, he was a professional sniper for the Marines you know he assassinated uh, uh, you know during the Vietnam War and he said yeah this is the way the CIA works he says you do not recruit that line to dry will dry up to recruit for the CIA if you start killing off your assets nobody's gonna mm. want to work for you just right. common sense so we, uh, we have I, another I, question in the room here is, you know, what was the reason for blowing up the building? What did the CIA get out of it? You know, what did they stand to gain? Is there any uh, conjecture on, on what that might okay. be? Good question. And this is uh, our answer would be that it was not supposed to blow up. It was only supposed to go up to the point of appearing that it was going to blow up. And then the FBI and the ATF were going to come in and swoop down and to remunerate themselves to 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 basically. Um, uh, say, hey, you know what? We're not the stumble butts we were at Waco, and it blew up in their face. There was the now there were a lot of concentric circles here because there was the the vested interest in making sure that building came down because of the drug case, and there were two or three other federal cases that, uh, um, and we we may think that uh, there was some peripheral information to show that the Whitewater documents were in there. We don't know for sure, but there was some uh, there was some interest to cover the Clintons back, and those papers. Uh, would by default they weren't allowed to be stored in the federal building of little rock because it was the the state of the sitting president you had to go geographically to the closest federal building 
and Oklahoma City drew the George short straw on that. But we we don't know. We've never seen any of the remnants of the documents from the building. Well, you, so, you started out this with, uh, you know, you don't want to be glib, but it looked like a wily Coyote type of uh, right. bomb that went right. off. And it, and that's what wakes so many people up. I mean, people, you know, saw the, you know, the World Trade Centers coming down and they said, no, buildings aren't going to fall down like that. Why didn't the top just tip over? And yeah. it's the same way with that bomb at Oklahoma City. There's no way that it would have done the amount of damage that it did. And I don't know where I heard this. It might be AJ, you know, talking about uh, eyewitnesses, you know, seeing people walk, you know, grabbing gray sticks of butter that they walked out of the mural building with after the explosion, you know. Uh, right. And they, I spoke with Jane Graham, actually, oddly enough, eight days ago, we were talking about a book that Craig's going to be writing on the case, Craig Roberts, and she was the witness. We had arranged to have her on uh, Alex's show a couple of years before the movie came out, and uh, she was very solid. Uh, to this day, I could call her, and she'll tell me the same story. Um, yeah, it was Andreas Strassmeyer that was down there. And, and so that would indicate that, yes, they did plan on uh, taking a big chunk of the building down uh, because, you know, otherwise, why would you go through the if you were just going to uh, have the bomb sit out there and not explode it in the truck, you know, swoop down mm-hmm. and you know be the heroes of the day, then why would you have the whole building wired, uh, you know, to be taken out? Well, here's a, here's another interesting twist, guys. About two or three years after our film came out, people were still coming forward. They bump into them at a 7-Eleven or at a basketball game at the university or I'm out to dinner, you know, at uh, Denny's or whatever. And they'll come up to me and said, you're the one that made the movie. And I said, uh, yeah. I said, well, can you uh, let, let's talk. So we meet a few days later. A retired, um, this is a medic for the uh, Oklahoma County Sheriff's Department, sat down next to two guys that were working for the CIA at the crime scene about four hours after the bombing. And um, they could still smell the... Uh, you know the, the the explosive the C4 and the after effects and the after order of that. He's sitting down having a sandwich with these guys in the curb. They're all exhausted, wondering what the hell just happened. And these guys just blurted out, and said, "Yeah, there was there was uh, wire charges in the building. Just matter of fact, plain as day." And we had another one that was actually he was a um, a reserve sheriff, walked in there 18 minutes after the explosion, looking for people immediately, and he saw no less than 23 columns. They had mercury switches and explosive devices strapped to the columns. And I said, you remember? Me? Uh, can I, I know. stop? This, so, this well, is, what's, go ahead. What, back to the original question from the chat board. Mm-hmm. What, what, what was, the, was the point? Like, yeah, what's the reason for this? I mean, if they just well, wanted to show like they weren't bumbling fools, well, this, this, this is kind well, of like, that's very, very like ridiculously childish. I mean, I don't... Well, here's, I don't... here's the thing. Let's let's separate the two things here. We're not saying that the CIA or the government, they set it up to go, but it wasn't supposed to go live. And let me make that perfectly clear. This was supposed to be a false flag operation. But you had other people that were walking basically in, in line with the CIA, going in there and planting the explosives without the CIA's knowledge. It, so, isn't, isn't this kind of reminiscent of the 93 World Trade Center bombing yes, where they said yes. that it wasn't supposed to be live, but they gave the guy live explosives anyway and then actually did set it off? You know, and right. the intent was to blow the building up so that it would tip over and knock over the other building or something like that. Yeah, so. it's, it's, just, uh, it's just amazing. In fact, let me tell you this. I, I went to the trial for Terry Nichols the first uh, 10 days, opening arguments and then the evidence that was presented. And there was a security guard, his last name, ironically, last name of Nichols, 
uh, excuse me, um, a mechanic at the Regency uh, apartment towers a block away, and he knew the security guard. Burn security, oddly enough, uh, McVeigh worked for Burn security when he first got out of the army before he got in the CIA. It was a cover job up in upstate New York. This guy covered the beat of the post office, the federal building, the federal courthouse, the Federal Reserve Bank, and um, the Regency Towers. He walked those five buildings. He was hired by Burn Security, all within eight blocks of each other. Mm-hmm. So whoever was casing out the building knew when he would be there. And he, he did the same route every night, never mixed it up. So they knew when he was going to be walking at the post office or the Federal Reserve Bank or the, the, the federal courthouse. And there was and there was increments of at least an hour and a half that he'd be out of there. So they could have snuck in there. And what we did even – and this is another – going back to the blueprints, Rachel. I'm sorry. I don't mean yeah. to be jumping around here. But no, we're, I'm when just I looked, fascinated. I looked at those where the electrical uh, closets were on every floor. And it follows the same column. It's just – common sense engineering if you're going to run your plumbing you're going to run your electrical you do it down the same column it's a lot easier for maintenance a lot easier you know to to put together less material costs and what we found out just by the damage done to the second floor where the kids were killed in the nursery that yes those explosives were put between the drop ceiling and the concrete slab of the the floor above you have about three feet of space And it, you know, it's just even even General Parton said, yeah, you just you could put them in a, a rag bucket and and hide it. Just put rags on top of the bucket and just set it next to the column. It was so powerful. It, it literally took these columns, four to six feet of of those columns, and turned them to chalk dust within about two seconds. It was okay, gone. Okay, so, it, right, so I'm still back to this. Like, why? I know that's that's the ultimate question. We we don't know, other than the fact that there was federal uh, uh, cases ready to go to court. And um, there were groups, the Honor Among Thieves, they were working together. They needed to have that building brought down. They, meaning the peripheral, there may have been some bad sides of the CIA that wanted to make this. They had to have this go live. There's a lot of people that are on the payroll. You know, I mean, mm-hmm, they're, mm-hmm. they're paid well enough. They'll help you do whatever needs to be done. They'll turn the, you know, they'll turn the blind eye and walk the other way. It was really sinister. And that yeah. space that you're, uh, you know, that you're referencing where the explosives were placed, you know, that would, the only people that would see that would be the actual mechanical crew that would go in and exactly. work on wiring or plumbing or whatever. Exactly. I mean, a cleaning crew or the daily occupants of the office. So those charges right. could have been there for quite some time and they could have been wiring it over a long period of time. This is something that, sure. yeah, it could have, you know, been in the planning stages for a very long time. So. Yeah, and the security at that building was a level two. It was supposed to be a level seven. And uh, it was just, again, the GSA was cutting back on funds. Uh, we have uh, at least two employees that told us they were able to get into the loading dock uh, door where UPS and FedEx, everybody would drop off their stuff using their uh, ID, plastic ID cards to flip the uh, the bolt on the door in the back. It was so easy to get in that. A lot of the cameras in the building were not working. There were some. There, were, there was a, a bank that were on the outside, but some were not. And um, in fact, my ex-roommate, oddly enough, this is this is where the synchronicity comes together. Um, he actually uh, interviewed for a job that he saw the bank of, of cameras that were working fine, and that's that's where the FBI just flat out lied about it. That's where they confiscated the tapes. That's another, like I said, another topic for another interview. Right, we right. We can go on and on and on yeah. and on. 
But an, uh, another one of the really damning pieces, uh, you know, that I think in is that, and I don't know if this is true or not. It might be another thing that I heard on Jones's show, but that all of the uh, demolition material was hauled to one landfill, and that landfill is guarded. You know, that still has a fence around it, and so that you know you can't get into. Nobody could go in and run tests on any of the materials from there. Is well, yeah, that's that's correct. Now let me let me expound Holy on that. Really. Yeah, well, well, hold on. There was four different landfills. One of them okay. happened to be uh, leveled over, and there's a, a police training academy, I believe, for the Midwest City Police Department. Their parking lot is, is literally over one of those landfills. Now, that's another thing that my contact at GSA asked me. He looked at me, and he says, I want to help you guys out any way I can. Just don't reveal my name. I'll give you whatever you need, you know, whatever I can. Mm-hmm. But he says, why would somebody, why would the GSA, this is in uh, December of 2000 three that I met with him, why would they still charge us $6,800 for a, a copies of a complete set of the blueprints for a building that had been buried in four different landfills uh, at that time eight years earlier, over eight and a half years before that? It makes no sense. They did not want those blueprints to come out. Luckily, we were able to get eight pages. We scanned a couple of them. I took them to an architecture uh, a graphics firm. They scanned it for us, and we were able to, to blend them into the movie and the graphics. Mm-hmm. Another one of our uh, our chatters in the room there says that he is an electrician, and he says it's easy. You know, all you have to do is have that tool belt on, and uh, you know, security and everything just you know just walks you right in. They don't even care. Sure, so. <laughs> it's like having a UPS uniform on. You know, you can you can get. Uh, you're right, and I, I respect what he's saying because that's what we think could happen. Who's going to turn you know uh, a suspicious eye to somebody that's there probably every day? All right, you'll have one of his buddies. Maybe you never see. He'll show up. You know. Yeah, and right. if they ask who you are, you can just say, "Well, Joe, t- Joe is sick today, so I'm his replacement." You know, something like that. Now, remember, we are talking about the CIA. They can go into the guise of, you know, delivering donuts for Dunkin' Donuts for Christ's sakes. They certainly can get in as electricians. So you're right. He made a very good point. Well, and, and the guy at the Super Bowl that you know made it onto TV and said 9/11 was an inside job because he, you know, went to deliver some donuts, right? You know, he just they walked him right through oh. the gate. <laughs> yeah. I know we're limited on time here, guys. I apologize, but uh, we got about another seven minutes, I guess. Eight minutes. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you want so, to t- tell? Do you want one last thing to say about this whole thing? Do you want people to take away from this Oklahoma City thing, and also where people can see this film? Yes, our website. Thank you for asking. And uh, yeah. uh, our website is uh, freemindfilms.com. We have all three uh, films. It's uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, and then we went on to State of Mind, Psychology of Control, which Alex did an absolutely wonderful job of helping us promote uh, in 2013. And then we, our third one, our latest, is called Shadow Ring, which is narrated by Kevin Sorbo, Hollywood actor, uh, done a wonderful job for us. Mary Ellen Moore, Rachel, you know her. She yeah, was yeah. the one that was instrumental in getting Kevin on board for that. Uh, so... Um, but anyway, you can look at all three films. Uh, we'd appreciate your patronage as opposed to downloading the, the free copies off of YouTube. At least the first two are on there. And it's like sweeping back the ocean. It's tough to keep those off of YouTube. But anyway, they're available on, yeah, on Vimeo. They're, they're and, so good. Yeah. That's why people just want to share the information. So you can't blame them. But it's true. People, you should right. buy it and support this we, effort. This is we, amazing. We've got investors to pay back. We've got to monetize it. Uh, we're not making yeah. a, a ton of money. Anyway, uh, the trailers are connected to our Vimeo channel, which has all of our, our work, including some of the music videos we've done. And uh, there's some interesting, uh, some of the, the, the pilot trailers and some of the music that we've had in, in uh, the movie. So there's about, I'd say about 20... 18 to 20 different files on the Vimeo channel. You can download the films. Um, I believe they're going for 
and you know that's just the way things are. We still have some of our um, DVDs available. Mm-hmm. They can contact me at uh, chris.emery at freemindfilms.com. I can set up an order for that, or just go to the Vimeo channel off of the trailers. They're connected right to the Vimeo download file, mm-hmm. and we'd appreciate your support. Well, I, I have all three of your videos that I bought from the Power Hour when you were uh, you. guests on there. And, yeah, they're they're a great investment because you can watch them several times and still not absorb everything. And, you exactly. know, we've just been on just this first film, Oklahoma City, and, you know, Shadow uh, Ring and... Uh, uh, oh, Shadow <laughs> Ring is out of control. That is, like, one of the best. It really is one of the best movies out there in this genre. <laughs> Yeah, we. Uh, by the way, I want everybody to know that uh, there were 75 of us that worked on that Oklahoma City bombing case. I'm just one of the several spokespersons for it, so I don't want to take the credit, and I certainly wouldn't if asked to do so. But uh, it was it was a uh, a life changing experience, and we're still yeah, getting intel good. coming in. Five and a half years on, people are still contacting us. Well, that, that's part of this whole thing that I kind of wanted to go into a little bit, too. I mean, our show is called Shadow Citizen, and then your mm-hmm. latest movie was called Shadow Ring. And so there is this, uh, you know, you, you fall, you know, you tumble down the, the rabbit hole, you find one little thing, and you think, oh, my God, the world's coming to the end. And then you there it opens up into this huge <laughs> underground tunnel system going into all these different directions, and it all oh seems God, to be yes. connected, you know, so... That's something I'd like to say for people is that you know don't lose heart. I mean sometimes it becomes overwhelming, but you know I, I mean all the guests that are in Shadow Ring. I mean Aaron Dykes is is pretty young and yet he's just in the amount of time that he's been in it, he's absorbed all this information. Now he's become another walking encyclopedia. You know. Oh yeah, it's we we really have all the most respect for Jack Blood and I understand Rachel. He helped with the the music score on your show. Jack has been mm-hmm. a longtime friend. I mean, everybody, um, most of those people I know personally, some I'd met for the first time, uh, but um, they're just, we're, we're humbled to have them in the film. We certainly don't take that for granted. They're they are amazing in their own right. You know, they have a skill set that is way beyond what I would be able to, to handle, so. Yeah, we're all big fi- fans of Jack Blood here. We, we, you know, he's been off air for a while, and he's doing his band thing, and we're happy mm-hmm. for him, but, you know, he basically said that this, this election is a no-win situation because... Uh, if you point out anything about either candidate, you know, the other side is going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. And, sure. uh, you know, and so that's sure. what, you know, that's what happens to the, the shadow citizens. All of a sudden, uh, you know, they find that they can't get work and then, you know, and if you can't get work, you, you, I mean, you don't have the money and you, it's just basically the whole system well, is set up off of this. Rob, I, I empathize with you. That happened to me in Oklahoma City. I had three of my jobs threatened. And luckily, I, I sat down with all of my bosses and I said, look, this is the film I'm working on. This may or may not happen, meaning some people may be making some phone calls, sending some emails or making some visits. I just appreciate if you could back me up. And every one of them did. It was just amazing. But I saw that those wheels rolling. And yes, there are unfortunately people that can't get gainful employment if they try to do what we're trying to do. Yeah. It is. That's the reality of it all. Rachel, if I can interject here real quick, you made uh-huh. a very good point on the blueprints. And I know you have quite a story to tell about World Trade Center 7 and the blueprints. Yeah. And maybe, but that, that's another show another that's time. That's a different but, day, different yeah. day. Yeah, so, no, this yeah. is excellent. I'm so glad you were able to show up. I know you have to head out. you got another thing you got to deal with. Yeah. But I'm so glad you came, and I appreciate it so much. Well, guys, I never take these interviews for granted, and I said that on my post on Facebook last night. I've been doing this for, my God, uh, two, since 2003, 
And um, every one of them, I'm very humbled to, for you to take the time to invite me. I will definitely uh, do whatever I can, and I'd love to come back on whenever you need me. Uh, oh, we, we'd love to have you back on. Yeah, we just you, base, you know we just scratched the surface here, and there's a lot more to you know. I think we were going in a whole different direction yesterday during our uh, or Monday, I guess, when we did the <laughs> make sure that technology works. But uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the way, no, I'm, we'll, we'll look, get that figured out. I'm looking forward to hearing your other guests. Uh, uh, Catherine Fitz and uh, yeah. Sean Stone. My God, I'm I'm humbled to be in their company. So and oh, I know. And, and yeah, or what's his name? Ortel's going to be on. And then of course uh, James Perloff. I forgot to. I'm yeah, remiss without yeah. mentioning. He did an outstanding job. James is uh, stellar. With he helped us so much on our third film, and uh, you know it's always a joy to talk to him and exchange stories. And um, we have a little bit of humor going between us. So. Uh, he's he's wonderful. Very, very yeah, he's good just a cornucopia of information. That man. He I don't know what his deal is. If he's got like a, a <laughs> like he's he's like a encyclopedia. He really yeah. is. So there are a lot of people in this you know in this movement that are that way. You know Jack Blood being one of them, and Alex Jones, of course. You know people sure. have a hard time with Alex. You know after a while, but you know he has done so much for this movement that you know we have to give him credit for that. And well, I um, I heard uh, Mary Ellen, um, a colleague, and I were talking this morning. She said to say hello, Rachel, and uh, really hi, Mary Ellen. Show. Hi. And <laughs> anyway, uh, Alex evidently is going to open up a bureau in Washington D.C. And Jerome Corsi is going to be heading that up. Now that's mm-hmm. that was public on his show. She she said, yeah, that's he has 2.3 million listeners a day, so I'm certainly not letting the cat out of the bag. But I think that would be awesome for Jerome Corsi to head up his uh, you know his bureau. And I wish the all the best to the guys at uh, Infowars and the the women, the men and women. I've I've got some good friends over there, and I have the utmost respect for what they're doing. So. Yeah, you have to, you know, you have to give hats off to Alex. And, you know, maybe it's that gruff character that brings in people that just, uh, you know, they rush Limbaugh isn't doing it for him anymore. And they see, uh, oh, no. you know, ru- they see Alex screaming at uh, Pierce Morgan and they go, oh, let's go find out who this guy is. So, you know, <laughs> so wh- however we get people to come in and, and just, you know, it's the same way as Governor Ventura. I mean, I voted for him. Uh, I'm in Minnesota. I voted for him. I didn't think he would ever get it. Uh, but then, you know, once he's in, I'm kind of going, oh, my gosh. You know, but now when he went into the, the uh, conspiracy theories thing, it, it kind of made it okay to talk about conspiracy theories. And so now they have to come up with fake news, you know, and that's not working for him. So. No, exactly. Well, guys, thank you. And uh, sorry, I have to roll, but um, let's, let's do this again sometime. If, yes, uh, we will. You know, thank you so much, Chris. Yes, Everybody, you, Chris. that was Chris Emery. Go check him out. <laughs> At Free Minds Films. Films, yep. Okay, thanks, Chris. Thank you. Bye. Okay, Rachel, so, that, well, that we got... was good. I, <laughs> I was so happy to have him on. That was excellent. I was that worried was at the beginning there. I thought we, we I thought we, <laughs> I thought it was all going to just fall apart. But, you know, somehow no, these no. things just work out, so. Hold it together. I, I didn't want to interrupt him because I knew his time was limited. But when I was working at the defense contractor, before 9-11 happened, it was very shortly before 9-11, they hauled out all of the highest ranking people in the corporation that I was working for and flew them over to the Oklahoma City um, Memorial. And, and then all of a sudden, everybody came back with this renewed sense of purpose that they had to be, re- you know, be ready for the next attack. And that, I always think about that. I was like, why are you guys going to Oklahoma? 
I remember walking to my boss's office going, why the heck are they sending you to Oklahoma? It's like this big, big deal. Like they were getting nice hotels and all, they were getting the treatment. I was like, what's going on? Well, that's... And next thing you know, 9-11 happened literally like the next week, I believe. And that's kind of the whole story about, you know, Bush in the classroom full of children. And they just let him sit there for a while. And then when they finally got him on Air Force Run, he, one, he's flying around the country for a while. And does he go back to Washington? Does he go to some military base? No, he flies to, I believe he, you know, fl flew and met with uh, Warren Buffett, <laughs> of all people. So, uh, and I'm going to have to... He went directly to Warren Buffett? Yeah, I, that's... Oh, man. <laughs> And, uh, you know, you, you hear all these crazy stories and, and uh, sometimes I get in trouble because, you know, I fall for a lot of it. But that's that's, you know, a, a lot of times it ends up being worse than what, you know, what you heard in the first place. You know, it's kind of yeah, like, right, a, right. You know, this Peter um, Thiel thing, you know, I thought, oh, this has got to be, you know, but he's actually, uh, you know, the, the founder of uh, what PayPal and uh, Republican, uh, you know, financer on many levels you know all of a sudden mm -hmm. he's getting into life extension technology and what is life mm -hmm. extension they take blood transfusions from young people that are in their prime they take the plasma yeah they take the plasma from the blood and dress it up and read they stick it into old people and then the old people get the a charge they get renewed so supposedly <laughs> right the, the company's name is ambrosia if anybody wants to look it up it's called ambrosia this is Peter Thiel from PayPal. Well, I hope they will figure out that they can't keep feeding us GMOs and spraying us with chemtrails if they want to keep doing that unless they're going to find a healthy race of young people someplace that aren't exposed to all that stuff. So, but Hey, uh, should we do the tie color report? Hey, we should. Do you want the intro music? Yes, yes. I love the intro music. <laughs> okay, here comes the intro to tie okay. color report. Shadow Citizen presents the Necktie Color Report. And now for this week's interpretation of the subliminal messaging in Necktie Color as shown in this week's photos distributed by the mainstream media. And that's your cue, Rachel. All right, right on. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Shadow Citizen Tie Color Report. This past week, we witnessed the explosive news of a travel ban on Friday. They always tend to do this stuff on Friday because of the news cycles. I loved when they even said that in the New X-Files, even though the New X-Files episodes actually sucked. I like how they included the fun fact that this will probably happen on a Friday. Anyhow, Friday news release allows the messaging to percolate. It also gives the production teams of the news to get their feature stories together for Sunday night which means most people will be able to process and talk about the story at the coffee machine in the break room on Monday morning. This has always been the scene with the news. Nowadays, with the alternative media and the Internet, lead time is very, very short. The massaging of the message has moved to a new level, specifically the art of exploiting what is currently dubbed fake news and throwing that into the mix so that by Monday morning at the coffee machine, People are literally ready to cry about a nine-month travel ban. In order to get this desired response, you better believe that the outfits, specifically the ties, were carefully selected before these men stepped in front of a camera. In my very first tie color report a couple of weeks ago, I explained how I used to pick out ties for important people, 
and that included some congressmen, before they went on camera. I also explained that in that very first tire color report that the color of the tie was important because it helped convey a psychological, which is how you emotionally feel, and physiological, which is how your body physically reacts, marker to the content to, of the message. Tie color can do that in a nanosecond. Since a single image becomes almost like a stained glass window at a cathedral, if you think about it, those people back then at the cathedrals, they couldn't read, and the message had to go get through loud and clear. Now, people, instead of seeing an image made of richly colored glass illuminated by sunlight, they see it in high definition in more colors than an eye can process on a plasma screen for less than half a second. And by Wednesday, you have everyone from Ellen DeGeneres to the New York Times to Joe the Blogger to the Telegraph in the UK critiquing the thing and helping you form your opinions. So when this travel ban hit the scene, you better believe that the ties were already picked out. So let's review. On Friday, when President Trump signed the travel ban in the seven Muslim-majority countries that the Obama administration had already deemed a threat for, for 90 days and suspending all refugee admission for 120 days, which incidentally did not include a ban on people with green cards, he was wearing, as expected, a red power tie. FYI. The guidance sent to the airlines on Friday night, obtained by CNN, said clearly lawful permit residents are not included and may continue to travel to the USA. The order immediately prompted people in London to start marching around in the streets demanding that President Trump not be allowed to travel to the UK. It also kicked off a number of airport protests where people, still high from their experience at the Women's March, began ardently protesting. The airport protest action then prompted the state and local elected officials to comment not only on the travel ban, but on Donald Trump himself and an assortment of tangentially related issues. One of the more significant declarations of displeasure was by New York Senator Chuck Schumer, who was one of the featured speech speakers at Donald Trump's inauguration. He came forth with a young girl wearing a headscarf and a younger boy, and proclaimed with real tears in his eyes that the ban was mean-spirited. He was wearing a great combination of a bluish-greenish, faintly patterned tie on a very light blue shirt. This was an excellent choice, seeing as anything Muslim can be associated with the color green, and anything Democrat can be associated with the color blue. This was a great photo op with the children in the color scheme. Of course, Senator Schumer supported a travel ban under the previous administration, so take that for what you will. Interestingly, this week I saw a communication that the Democratic Party would be shifting its messaging from pre predominantly African Americans to the American Muslim community. Also this week, I noticed Hawaiian Democrat Tulsi Gabbard, who is a Hindu with military police background and who had served in Iraq, appearing on CNN in a solid red dress in front of a purple background. I talked to you last week about purple. The red made sense considering that she was talking about the horrors of war and the situation in Syria. She was calling out what she witnessed while on her fact-finding mission to the country, which was approved by the House Ethics Committee and sponsored by Arab American Community Center for Economic and Social Services. She found out that there were, in fact, no 
quote-unquote moderate rebels in Syria, and she called for the U.S. to stop supporting the carnage. It is my conclusion from that brief CNN appearance that Tulsi Gabbard is going to run for president. I made this statement based on the, I'm making this statement based on the fact that she's a woman with military history wearing red in front of an illuminated purple. She very well could face off with Donald Trump at the next election and win. I'll keep you posted on further developments next week in my Shadow Citizen tie color report. This, this stuff is really all fascinating uh, to me, and I will reflect what is Keith Peace has said in the chat room. Eyes are the windows of the soul, and if you control the audience, you control the world. So uh, I'm a little bit colorblind. <laughs> Maybe that... Oh, well, there you go. See, you're, you're going to be immune to all this stuff. But there's some people that are really, really... Um, I am one of these people. I went to art school, and literally, if the color on a wall is different like if you if i go into let's say my mother's house and she's had the house painted a new i don't know new tone of white because my mom's really into white but there's always these different tones of white it will literally make me feel sick to my stomach huh. if it's if it's not the right if it's not the right color so i'm i'm highly attuned to this color thing and that's why it's so fascinating to me yeah, it is to me, too. I'm going to do a little bit more re reflecting on our chat since we have some great listeners. So, uh, yeah, Jared, you know, said that Bush was flown to Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, and that's where Buffett lives. So, and then uh, let's see what else we have here. Uh, Courage Sower put in here that in ancient Greek myth, Ambrosia, you know, this new company, right. is something is sometimes the food or drink of the Greek gods, often depicted as conferring longevity or immortality upon whoever consumes it. So, thanks, guys. That's for... right. That's right. Because uh, the only way I know Ambrosia is from like the 1970s when we used to bring it to Thanksgiving, and it was like coke shredded coconut mixed in with like mini marshmallows mixed in with like I think it was those mandarin oranges. And you mixed it up. I, it was like some, I forget what the actual, it wasn't yogurt, obviously, at that time. It might have been whipped cream. I don't know. And you mixed it all together. It was called ambrosia. And me and my sister loved it. It was probably Cool Whip, if you remember. Cool Whip. Yeah, there you go, right there. You know, even that or fluff, marshmallow fluff. <laughs> but I think it was Cool Whip. Yeah, okay. So anyway, who's our guest next week? You want to introduce that? No, you could, you could go ahead. Uh, and it's uh, <laughs> Sean, uh, Sean Stone. Oliver Stone's son. Son, right? Yeah. And so that'll be Sean a Stone. Great show, and I will uh, I will get this show cleaned up a little bit. We got off to a bad start, so I will uh, patch together whatever we can, and we'll put that up on our archives, so you'll be able to find that at shadowcitizen.online. So remember, it's online, not uh, .com. And, uh, yeah, we're going to continue rolling and hopefully get a little bit better each week. And uh, thanks to Chris Emery for joining us for this show. That was an awesome interview. We want to have you back. And our audience that tunes in and puts up with all this, you guys are <laughs> the best. You're the best. And share this show once it comes down. And I am going to convert them to podcasts. Um, that's my job. His job is to get it on this radio <laughs> confluence and the Mixler and my job is to turn it into podcasts once it hits the archives. So I promise you the archives are going to turn into podcasts. <laughs> okay, and we're going to go out with a little bit of rage against the machine, and I think we've got no <laughs> shelter here. So thanks, everybody, for listening. See you next Wednesday, and uh, take care.
Bye, everyone. Let it